And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Back in 2019, um, a few people you might have heard of, uh, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian West. Yes, I'm starting a a sermon talking about the the Wests. Uh, Kanye and Kim, they made a lot of news, as they often do, but this time it was about something that kind of pertains to us, and that's they, they started what kind of felt like a church. They started something called a Sunday service. You guys heard of the Sunday service before? Yeah, there's a few folks around. He, it ended up becoming an album, which is actually pretty good, Jesus is King. Um, and with this Sunday service, all the participants, which was just kind of like a who's who of A-listers, invite-only crowd, they all wore Yeezy outfits. They were kind of matching, looked kind of cultish. Uh, they sang uh, some fantastic music all about Jesus. And though they weren't trying to be a conventional church, Kim Kardashian said this about it. There's no praying, there's no sermon, there's no word. It's just music, and it's a feeling. Although she did go on to clarify that the service is meant to be a Christian thing, quote unquote. Now, when I was a doctoral student, uh, to the chagrin of some of my professors, I chose to spend 24 pages uh, deciding whether or not Kim and Kanye's uh, uh, service should be called a church. I'm not sure that my professors knew who they were as I wrote on this paper. My question in that paper was, if this qualifies as a church, what is a church? What is it? What makes this a church? It has a lot of the markers that we might find in a regular church. It has a regular attendance. It has a a group of people that are coming together to sing praises to God and the God that we worship. They were largely talking about the God of the Bible. Many of his influences with the Sunday service were solid biblical influences. So is this a church? And to spare you all the dirty details of the 24-page laborious academic paper, uh, my conclusion was uh, no. I don't think it is. And that's for a variety of reasons. But the main reason is, is because a church is trying to be a church. You don't just fall into a church A group of people must try to become a church. And in that, the group of people must be committed to one another, committed to seeing the the well-being of one another, committed to seeing God among their midst. That's why churches do things like practice communion and practice baptism. These are only things that churches can do. The church is far more than a worship service. The church is more than a vibe. The church is more than a weekly meeting. The church is meant to be the light of the world, brothers and sisters. We are meant to be the light of the world. The church 
is where the gospel is made visible. The church is meant to be this beautiful collection of diverse people encouraging one another and helping one another trust God more. Friends, every Christian needs a church. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're the ones that are showing up to church here today. But every Christian needs a church. And not just a worship service. They need a church family because the church is more than just a worship service. More than that, every person needs this. It's in the church where we have this deep connection with one another, where we get to enjoy the presence of God. God's vision for the church is so much bigger than our vision for the church. I've known too many pastors who have made it about numbers, how many people you can get in the church. When God never seems to emphasize that, he emphasizes his presence with his people. And that's why he says where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. It doesn't matter how big your church is to God. What matters to God is, are you seeking my face? Am I with you? And we want to be a church that's full of the Holy Spirit, that's full of God. Now, numbers are great. We want to grow bigger as a church. We want to reach our friends and neighbors with the good news of Jesus because we are the light of the world. We want to shine that light into darkness. But we want God more than anything. We want to be where he dwells. And so this week, Paul is continuing his study on the church. Did you know that's what Ephesians is about? We've been doing Ephesians for eight weeks. Ephesians is about the church. It, it might not, he's talking about all kinds of stuff at different times, but when you look down to the basic, what is this book about? It's about the church. The first three chapters are really theological. The last three chapters are very practical. And today he's getting into what it means for us to be the church. We really get to see God's vision for the church. So join me as we dive into this. We're going to talk about how he takes strangers and turns them into family and then turns them into a holy temple for the Lord here on earth. So let's dive in, church. Let's look at it in those three points that we're as the church, we're no longer strangers. Verse 17, open your Bible. Let's keep looking at it. Let's look at this passage. Verse 17, so then you are no longer strangers. Oh, sorry. It's verse 19. Well, too far, too, too later. We're going to get back to verse 17. Verse, two, verse 19 is where we're going to start. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What does he mean when he says you are no longer strangers and aliens? These, these words, strangers and aliens, what it's meant to mean to us is this idea of foreign. You are no longer foreigners. We don't use the, the term alien very often unless we talk about illegal aliens or a, illegal immigrants. You are no longer foreigners, but you are part of the household of God. You are no longer strangers. Before coming to Jesus, many, it's not like we had our lives all put together, <laughs> that we were pretty much had it working, and we just needed Jesus to make it that final step. You know, we carried the ball to the one-yard line, and Jesus helped us get it over into the end zone. That's not how it worked. We were taking that ball Sorry for the football analogy if you're not into it. But we were taking the ball, and we were going the other direction. We were on the other team. We were marching it toward the other end zone. And God 
adopted us into his team. Where Jesus is better than Tom Brady, believe it or not. He gets us across the end zone alone. It's just him. We're no longer strangers, meaning that it's not like we had our lives pretty much put together and then we added church attendance to the top of it and that's what made us right before God. Before following Jesus, our entire lives were foreign to the ways of God. We were going our own way apart from God. Before following Jesus, we didn't even speak the language of God. We were foreigners to his grace. We didn't understand his mercy and his kindness. We thought God was the devil. We thought God was who he was, who he never claims to be. We thought God wanted ill for us. Before following Jesus, we were doing what is right in our own eyes. There's no Bible passage that more describes our life before Jesus as this passage in the, in the book of Judges when it says, when there is no king, there was no king in the land of Israel and every person did what is right in their own eyes. Does that not describe our modern culture and every culture that when there is no king, every person does what is right in their own eyes? It's not like they're trying to do what is wrong, they're just doing what's right in their own eyes. Before following Jesus, we were strangers to the ways of God. But now, we're no longer strangers and aliens, so Paul says, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So how did he do this? How did he take us from stranger and make us friend and make us family? How did he do this? Well, that's where we get to verse 17, because he says in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and you and peace to those of you who were near. When he's talking about those who are far away and those who are near, he's continuing this discussion about Jew and Gentile. When he says he preached peace to those of you who were far away, he's talking about the Gentiles. And when he's talking about he preached peace to those of you who were near, he's talking about the Jews. But notice they both need peace. Neither of them are okay with God by themselves. A good way for us to maybe think about this is when you grow up in church, And you have the gospel preached to you from a very early age, as Mark was sharing his testimony earlier. Mark needed the peace of Christ for himself. His parents couldn't do it for him. He was near in that he was growing up in the home, but he still needed it. And then others of us grew up far, not in the church as a child. And we needed the peace of Christ to those who are far, but we all need this peace of Christ that Jesus came to preach. He came and preached peace, but verse 14, if we just go up a few more, he describes that peace. We talked about this last week, and it says, for he himself is our peace. So what was Jesus preaching when he was here on earth? He was preaching himself. He was preaching this message about who he is, that God has sent his one and only son to come into the world and to bring peace. How does he bring peace? But through this thing that we call substitutionary atonement. That Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And through his death and resurrection, we get to live. That is the good news of Jesus. That's the message that he's preaching. That is how we have peace with God. God sent Jesus to take on the wrath that I deserve so that I might have relationship 
with him. I think one of the songs that we sing many times, I think we might have even sang this last week, is a great illustration of this principle. It's called All I Have is Christ. Listen to the lyrics. I once was lost in darkest night, stranger to the ways of God. I once was lost in the darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that had promised life had led me where to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, running toward the other end zone, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place and bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. This is the good news that we have in the gospel. This is the message of peace that he came to preach. And it's beautiful. So we're no longer strangers, but what does that make us? Point number two, as the church, we are members of the household of God. As the church, we are members of the household of God. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He starts by saying, you're fellow citizens with the saints. That doesn't strike us too much in our society. In the United States, anyone can, pretty much anyone can become a citizen in the country. Uh, if you're born in this country, you're automatically a citizen. And most people can naturalize at some point, as long as they go through the proper channels. That was not the case in the Roman world. In the Roman world, only 2% of the population were actually citizens which kind of helps you understand why in Acts 22, when Paul is about to get flogged, and then he looks at the Roman soldiers, and he's like, you can do this to a citizen? And they're like, hold up, you're a citizen? Because 98% of people were not citizens. 98% of people were what we call free people or slaves. That's what what most people, it was free people or slaves. That's two different groups. But only 2% of people were citizens, and only a small percentage of them were in the, the elites. And so for God to make us citizens. He's writing this in a Roman world. That's a big deal. We've been made citizens. But he goes even farther than that. We're not even only just citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We're members of his family. We relate to God not only as a king, but as a father. We relate to God as if we were a prince or a princess. It's not only that we can come into the, the, the uh, palace of God and have a dinner at his table, it's that we have dinner every night. It's that we get to climb up in his throne from time to time and sit with him. It's that we get to relate with him. You know, I have a lot of neighbors who are no longer strangers. They were once strangers. We threw a block party, and now they're friends. Now I know my neighbors, and it's delightful my neighbors are no longer strangers. They're, they're friends. They're people, if, I, if I'm going out of town, I can text a, a number of people and say, hey, can you watch my dog for me? And they'll come over and watch my dog. But they're not climbing in my lap. And they're, they're not going to come wake me up when, I need, when they need a drink of water in the, in the middle of the night. And I'm not taking time off of work to stay with them when they're sick. But for those three neighbors that live in my attic and in, in my wherever the third one sleeps, wherever it's convenient at that moment, where, where my children live, they're family. And to be family means more than just a citizen, but to be family means that you have access 
to God. You know, the best part about being a member of the household of God is that God is your Father and that you have access to Him. He doesn't just call us by our names. He calls us children. Verse 18 says, For through Him, through Jesus, we both have access, both those who are far and those who are near. We have access in one spirit to the Father. Many people like to view God like Uncle Vernon from Harry Potter. You guys know Uncle Vernon? Uncle Vernon tolerates Harry being in the house. Eh, eh, I don't know if he really tolerates Harry being in the house. He allows Harry to stay in his house. Harry sleeps in the cupboard under the stairs where the spiders are. While Dudley, has two, his, his natural-born child, has two bedrooms upstairs, one for all of his toys and one for him to sleep in. You see, Uncle Vernon isn't very fond of Harry. He just merely allows him to live there. Uncle Vernon provides for Harry's basic needs. He provides for Harry. But you could never dare accuse Uncle Vernon of being affectionate and loving toward Harry. That is not how he feels toward him. And many of us have thought about this as the way that we view God. That God allows us in, but he's not affectionate toward us. He's not loving toward us. He doesn't give us a full room. We get in, but it's just barely. He's actually quite disappointed in us most of the time. He wishes that we would just stop it and that we would be quiet so that he could get on with his life. We have this Uncle Vernon theology to God that he, he might meet our basic needs, but he's usually angry with us, is the way that we view God. Friends, this is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God of the Old Testament or the New Testament. When you look in the, in the New Testament, I think a lot of times we, we know that God is kind. But when you look in the, New, in the Old Testament, you go to a, a Exodus chapter 33, where uh, Moses is engaging with God. Moses is, is saying, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. He wants to see the face of God. And this is what God says in verse 34, after he shows Moses, his, or as he's showing Moses his glory. The Lord passed before him. So the essence of who God is, is communicated in this verse. And this is what it says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Old Testament God, New Testament God, merciful, compassionate, kind, gentle, lowly, loving kindness. He does not let the guilty go unpunished. He is just. He is a good God. But that's the whole point of Jesus, that he takes on the wrath that we deserve. So when you see the full picture of God, you realize that he even bore the wrath. He bore the punishment that we deserve so that all we get is grace. 
and kindness. This is the picture of God. He doesn't just stick you in a room under the stairs, but Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a room in his mansion for you. He doesn't just stick you in the cupboard. He invites you onto the throne and says, come here, my child. All that I have is yours. He is a good father. And the love of, of a father changes you. The love of this good father changes you. Because God has been so merciful to me, I in turn move in mercy toward others. So when someone wrongs me, I can say, it, you know, I have wronged God and he had mercy toward me. When someone is impatient with me, or when I'm tempted to be impatient, because God has been so patient with me, I am patient with others. Because God has been so loving to me, I am loving to others. Because God has been so self-sacrificial to me, in turn, it makes me self-sacrificial to others. You see, the best thing about being in the household of God is God, is that you get to call God your father. But the second best thing about being in the house of God is that we now get to extend the love of God to one another. Is that we get each other in this household, that we have brothers and sisters that we get to share it with. It's a joyful thing. It's a joyful thing that we get to enjoy. And in the church, we, we take on this family culture. You see, a lot of churches have a really strong doctrine of what they believe, but you can have great beliefs that don't lead into a good culture. And so it shines what you really think about your doctrine. But if we believe in this type of God, it changes the way we affect each other, and it gives us what we call a gospel culture in our church. And a gospel culture is this. A gospel culture is a place where we're honest, where we're humble, where we're kind, where we're not here I am people, but we're there you are people. We talked about that last week. A gospel culture is a place where our relationships are marked by safety and time. Where we're patient with one another in that way. That's why we have this list of things when you come in. We, we have the, the, the COA commitments, the City on a Hill commitments that we sometimes call ourselves COA. COA commitments. And there's, there's 10 of them. And we actually need to, we need to update the sign because I added one more. But here they are, very briefly. This is what it means to live in the family of God. For us, these are just some things that we've helped to, to guide us. Some, some guardrails here, some house rules. We start with what's right, not what's wrong. We emphasize what's right, not what's wrong. We remember what's right while working on what's wrong. We remember that one degree of change is still a change and worth celebrating. We build each other up. We don't beat each other up. You know, Romans 12, this is like the cheesiest line from one of my hero pastors, but I love it, and so I'm going to share it with you guys. But Romans 12 says, outdo one another in, in honor. So uh, Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, he says, it's a competition, but everyone wins when you outdo one another in showing honor. So we build each other up. We don't beat each other up. We celebrate confession. We don't cringe. We don't rebuke repentance, we rejoice. We proclaim good news, then give good advice. And the last one that we're, we've been adding is commitment comes before certainty. 
Commitment comes before certainty. And that's an important thing for us. As a church with a lot of transient people, we have to realize that sometimes our commitment to the church has to come before we're even sure that this is the church we want to be a part of. Our commitment to a relationship has to come before we're sure that this is the relationship that we want to pursue. FOMO is killing us. The fear of missing out. There might be another thing out there that's better. So I'm going to keep my options open. But commitment comes before certainty, and it almost always does. So church, as members of the household of God, let's practice a gospel culture. Let me tell you where to start. Start in your own home by being honest. So if you have roommates, cultivate a gospel culture with your roommates. If you have children, are you cultivating a gospel culture in your home with your children? It's so hard. I'm so quick to snap at my own children because it's where I'm most sinfully me. I'm not on guard there. And I need to let God smooth out those rough edges, even in my home, where I seek to repent to my children and, and show the example to them. Because if we can do it there, it makes it more natural for us to do it everywhere. And if we have to do it there, it means we have to lean into that relationship with God a little bit more. I say all the time, the secret to parenting is just loving Jesus more. Because if I understood how patient Jesus was with me, it would give me more patience for my kids. Friends, we need one another. and We can't do it without the church. I hear people say all the time, I believe in God, but I hate the church. Well, we're going to learn soon that the church is the bride of Christ, so I wonder how God feels about you hating his bride. I hear people talk about how they have a few Christian friends, and they talk about faith, so that's their church. But friends, are you practicing baptism and Lord's Supper? Is there anyone that's watching over your soul, giving an account before the Lord on your behalf? Who are you submitting to? in those relationships. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 5 to submit to one another. Are you submitting to each other there? Are you submitting to elders who are watching over you? Who's preaching God's word to you on a regular occasion? Are you challenged to love difficult people in that hand-picked group? Do you just surf different messages that you like and you ignore the ones you don't like? Because in a church you don't have those choices. If that's your vision of the church, you're neglecting so many different commandments of the Bible. We need one another, and we need a church. We need that commitment. So, with the last point here, not only are we family, no longer strangers that have become family, but to go one step further, we are living stones in the temple of God. Living stones. The temple of God is this huge theme that you have all throughout Scripture. The temple is this amazing thing. It's this idea of the temple being the foot uh, stool of God, that God lives in heaven, but he rests his feet on earth in the temple. So in the temple, you have the presence of God most clearly communicated throughout all the scriptures. And inside of the temple is this special room that was quite small called the Holy of the Holies. And the Holy of the Holies was a room where only one person once a year was allowed to enter. After going through specific purification rituals, the high priest would enter the Holy of the Holies and give a a sacrifice in the Holy of the Holies in the presence of God on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
And legend tells us, this isn't in Scripture anywhere, but I kind of like the legend, uh, that they would have to tie a rope around their waist, and then someone would stand outside of the Holy of the Holies and hold on to the rope as they walked into the Holy of the Holies. Because if they got something wrong and they died in there, because they did not go through the purification rituals, no one is going in to get them. So then you have a rope to pull them out, just in case, so that you don't have to uh, send someone else in there, or just leave them in there. And so throughout all of the Old Testament, you have the presence of God being separate from the people of God, because the people of God had, were sinful and unclean. And here we are in the New Testament, and this, what is Paul saying? He says, we are the temple. It says in verse 22, in him you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 21, that as we're being joined together, we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. To a first century ear, where the temple is in recent memory, or it was still, still around, a version of the temple was there until AD 90. This was significant. They understood how powerful it was. He's saying that the church is the temple of God. Verse 20, he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul says that we're built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's a little bit of a confusing phrase because in, in 1 Corinthians, he says that there is no foundation other than Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians verse three, chapter 3, verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But I think what he's communicating here, because he goes on to say that Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, which is the most important piece of the building. Back, there, they, back then, they didn't have cinder blocks where everything was a uniform square. They had to find stones. And the cornerstone was a very square stone that they would place first on the corner of the foundation and then would build off of that. And so he's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's what we've all built on. And the apostles and prophets, they're just proclaiming Jesus. To be a prophet or an apostle, it means someone who declares Jesus. So yeah, we're being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but this is really just because they're proclaiming Jesus. They were the first to be proclaiming Jesus to us. How many churches build on foundations that aren't Jesus alone? Has anybody listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Have we seen a few? And it's good. It's, it's hard, but it's good. It's a great podcast done by uh, someone who was my former pastor at uh, a church in Louisville, uh, Mike Cosper, and he's done this podcast on uh, a church in Seattle called Mars Hill Church that was pastored by a man named Mark Driscoll. And uh, it went, it had a huge takeoff, huge following, and then a <laughs> spectacular fall where the church went from 10,000 or more people one year to not even existing the following year. A spectacular fall. And you can see the cracks in the foundation all along. And the cracks in the foundation are because they built the church on Mark and his charisma. One pastor's charisma. They always said it was built on Jesus, but it was really built on one pastor's charisma, which is the case in a lot of churches, which is why we need a plurality of leaders, which is why we need elders at our church. And we're so glad that people like Mark and Jeremy Cohns, who will be sharing his testimony in a couple of weeks, are coming on to, to serve alongside me in that way. Because this church must be built on Jesus alone. 
Too many times churches are built off of things that aren't Jesus. You can build off of a common social cause. You can build off of a vibe, as Kanye and Kim did. Not a church, but you get what I'm saying. You can build off of a sense of style. There's a lot of churches that you walk into, and it's like, man, everybody here kind of dresses real similar. You can build off of an ethnic identity. But a church that lasts is a church that's built on the foundation of Jesus. You can have those other things as well, but that is what you need. The hard thing is you don't always know if you're on the foundation of Jesus or not. And here's how you can tell. This is how a home inspector might tell. A home inspector would look at the foundation, but he doesn't even need to do that. If, or she. They, they would just walk into a building, look at the walls, and if you see big cracks going down the wall, if you see the building tilting a little bit, the foundation is broken. The foundation is off. And so for us as a church, if you want to know, we're all, all churches are going to say you're built on Jesus. But if you want to know if that church is, has Jesus as the actual foundation practically, look at the walls. Where are the cracks? And so I encourage you guys, as living stones in our church, we're only as strong as our living stones are, to examine your foundation. Where are the cracks in your own life? What are the things that you're tempted to build on that aren't Jesus alone? Whether that be success or approval, friendship, success, whatever it is. Because we need each living stone to be as healthy as possible. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are, built, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Church, in Christ, we are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is not a building. The church is not a service. The church is a people, a people fully committed to one another and to the glory of God. None of us is perfect. Not one. But God has brought us together. He's joined us together. We're being built up together. And we are a temple of the Lord, imperfect, imperfect as we are. You know, I talked about Ray Ortland just a few minutes ago. They have this mantra at the church, at their church, that they say. They say, they call it the Emmanuel mantra, which is the name of their church. And they, they say it like this. One, I am a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. And that's the truth for all of our churches. That's the truth for us here. We are complete idiots, but our future is incredibly bright. That God dwells with us in the midst of our idiotic, Id- idiocracy. And anyone can get in on that if you'll trust in Him. Because we are that dwelling place. Each week, we have a reminder that we're the dwelling place of God. Because we share a meal together that represents his presence among us. And so as we take a communion meal together, we, we take the bread and we say, this is God's, Christ's body broken for us. He's with us. And we say, this is God, Christ's blood shed for us. It's all figurative, but in a real way, he's with us at the same time. We're being reminded that we are a holy temple for his glory. 
And so each week as we receive this, we examine ourselves to say, am I building on the foundation of Jesus or am I building on something else? And we use it as an opportunity to repent. We use it as an opportunity to reconcile relationships. We use it as a reminder of what God has done for us and an opportunity to recommit our lives to him each and every week. And so this week, we, we pray that as you do that, you will examine yourself carefully and you'll follow him and enjoy this meal and be reminded of what he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that's here with us right now. And as we prepare, as we prepare to enjoy this meal together, we pray that you will be filling our lives and helping us to hear from you. Jesus, we pray for anyone who isn't sure where they're at in their relationship with you. I know that for me, I never would have come if you had not called. And so I pray that you will be calling and speaking, that you will be pursuing a rebel to, to your will, that you'll be loving us first, and that we might feel the embrace of a Father's arms and know that what Christ has done is enough for me. So help us to trust in you today, Jesus give our lives to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.